Chapter Three, Part One of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter Three, Practical Politics, Part One. When I left Harvard, I took up the study of law. If I had been sufficiently fortunate to come under Professor Thayer of the Harvard Law School. It may be well that I would have realized that the lawyer can do a great work for justice and against legalism. But doubtless chiefly through my own fault, some of the teaching of the law books and of the classroom seemed to me to be against justice. The caveat emptor side of the law, like the caveat emptor side of business, seemed to me repellent. It did not make for social fair dealing. The let the buyer beware maxim, when translated into actual practice, whether in law or business, tends to translate itself further into the seller making his profit at the expense of the buyer, instead of by a bargain which shall be a profit of both. It did not seem to me that the law was framed to discourage, as it should, sharp practice, and other kinds of bargains except those which are fair and of benefit to both sides. I was young. There was much in the judgment which I then formed on this matter which I should now revise. But, then as now, many of the big corporation lawyers— to whom the ordinary members of the bar then as now looked up, held certain standards which were difficult to recognize as compatible with the idealism I supposed every high-minded young man is apt to feel. If I had been obliged to earn every cent I spent, I should have gone wholeheartedly into the business of making both ends meet, and should have taken up the law or any other respectable occupation, for I then held, and now hold, the belief that a man's first duty is to pull his own weight, and to take care of those dependent upon him and I then believed, and now believe, that the greatest privilege and greatest duty for any man is to be happily married, and that no other form of success or service for either man or woman can be wisely accepted as a substitute or alternative. But it happened that I had been left enough money by my father not to make it necessary for me to think solely of earning bread for myself and my family. I had enough to get bread. What I had to do, if I wanted butter and jam, was to provide the butter and jam, but to count their cost as compared with other things. In other words, I made up my mind that, while I must earn money, I could afford to make earning money the secondary instead of the primary object of my career. If I had had no money at all, then my first duty would have been to earn it in any honest fashion. As I had some money, I felt that my need for more money was to be treated as a secondary need, and that while it was my business to make more money, where I legitimately and properly could, yet that it was also my business to treat other kinds of work as more important than money-making. Almost immediately after leaving Harvard in 1880, I began to take an interest in politics. I did not then believe, and I do not now believe, that any man should ever attempt to make politics his only career. It is a dreadful misfortune for a man to grow to feel that his whole livelihood and whole happiness depend upon his staying in office." Such a feeling prevents him from being of real service to the people while in office, and always puts him under the heaviest strain of pressure to barter his convictions for the sake of holding office. A man should have some other occupation. I had several other occupations, to which he can resort if at any time he is thrown out of office, or if at any time he finds it necessary to choose a course which will probably result in his being thrown out, unless he is willing to stay in at cost to his conscience." At that day, in 1880, a young man of my bringing up and convictions could join only the Republican Party, and join it I accordingly did. It was no simple thing to join it then. 
That was long before the era of ballot reform and the control of primaries, long before the era when we realized that the government must take official notice of the deeds and acts of party organization. The party was still treated as a private corporation, and in each district the organization formed a kind of social and political club. A man had to be regularly proposed for and elected into this club, just as into any other club. As a friend of mine picturesquely phrased it, I had to break into the organization with a jimmy. Under these circumstances there was some difficulty in joining the local organization, and considerable amusement and excitement to be obtained out of it after I had joined. It was over thirty-three years ago that I thus became a member of the 21st District Republican Association in the city of New York. The men I knew best were the men in the clubs of social pretension and the men of cultivated taste and easy life. When I began to make inquiries as to the whereabouts of the local Republican Association and the means of joining it, these men, and the big business men and lawyers also, laughed at me, and told me that politics were low, that the organizations were not controlled by gentlemen, that I would find them run by saloon-keepers, horse-car conductors, and the like, and not by men with any of whom I would come in contact outside, and, moreover, they assured me that the men I met with would be rough and brutal and unpleasant to deal with. I answered that if this were so it merely meant that the people I knew did not belong to the governing class, and that the other people did, and that I intended to be one of the governing class, that if they proved too hard-bit for me I supposed I would have to quit, but that I certainly would not quit until I had made the effort and found out whether I was really too weak to hold my own in the rough and tumble. The Republican Association of which I became a member held its meetings in Morton Hall, a large barn-like room over a saloon. Its furniture was of the canonical kind, dingy benches, spittoons, a dais at one end with a table and chair and a stout pitcher for iced water, and on the walls pictures of General Grant and of Levi P. Morton, to whose generosity we owed the room. We had regular meetings once or twice a month, and between times the place was treated, at least on certain nights, as a kind of club-room. I went around there often enough to have the men get accustomed to me, and have me get accustomed to them, so that we began to speak the same language, and so that each could begin to live down in the other's mind what Bret Hart has called the defective moral quality of being a stranger. It is not often that a man can make opportunities for himself, but he can put himself in such shape that when or if the opportunities come he is ready to take advantage of them. This was what happened to me in connection with my experiences in Morton Hall. I soon became on good terms with members of the ordinary healers and even some of the minor leaders. The big leader was Jake Hess, who treated me with rather distant affability. There were prominent lawyers and businessmen who belonged, but they took little part in the actual meetings. What they did was done elsewhere. The running of the machine was left to Jake Hess and his captains of tens and of hundreds. Among these lesser captains I soon struck up a friendship with Joe Murray, a friendship which is as strong now as it was thirty-three years ago. He had been born in Ireland, but brought to New York by his parents when he was three or four years old, and, as he expressed it, raised a barefooted boy on First Avenue. When not eighteen he had enlisted in the Army of the Potomac and taken part in the campaign that closed the Civil War. Then he came back to First Avenue, and being a fearless, powerful, energetic young fellow, careless and reckless, speedily grew to some prominence as a leader of a gang. In that district, and at that time, politics was a rough business, and Tammany Hall held unquestioned sway. The district was overwhelmingly democratic, and Joe and his friends were Democrats, 
who on election day performed the usual gang work for the local democratic leader, whose business it was to favor and reward them in return. This same local leader, like many other great leaders, became puffed up by prosperity, and forgot the instruments through which he had achieved prosperity. After one election he showed a callous indifference to the hard work of the gang, and complete disregard of his before-election promises. He counted upon the resentment wearing itself out, as usual, in threats and bluster. But Joe Murray was not a man who forgot. He explained to his gang his purposes and the necessity of being quiet. Accordingly they waited for their revenge until the next election day. They then, as Joe expressed it, decided to vote furthest away from the leader, I am using the language of Joe's youth, and the best way to do this was to vote the Republican ticket. In those days each party had a booth near the polling place in each election district, where the party representative dispensed the party ballots. This had been a district in which, as a rule, very early in the day the Republican election leader had his hat knocked over his eyes, and his booth kicked over, and his ballots scattered, and then the size of the Democratic majority depended on an elastic appreciation of exactly how much was demanded from headquarters. But on this day things went differently. The gang, with a Roman sense of duty, took an active interest in seeing that the Republican was given his full rights. Moreover, they made the most energetic reprisals on their opponents, and as they were distinctly the tough and fighting element, Justice came to her own with a whoop. Would-be repeaters were thrown out on their heads. Every person who could be cajoled, or, I fear, intimidated, was given the Republican ticket, and the upshot was that at the end of the day a district which had never hitherto polled more than two or three percent of its vote Republican broke about even between the two parties. To Joe it had merely been an act of retribution, so far as it was not simply a spree. But the leaders at the Republican headquarters did not know this, and when they got over their paralyzed astonishment at the returns, they investigated to find out what it meant. Somebody told them that it represented the work of a young man named Joseph Murray. Accordingly they sent for him. The room in which they received him was doubtless some place like Morton Hall, and the men who received him were akin to those who had leadership in Morton Hall, but in Joe's eyes they stood for a higher civilization, for opportunity, for generous recognition of successful effort, in short, for all the things that an eager young man desires. He was received and patted on the back by a man who was a great man to the world in which he lived. He was introduced to the audience as a young man whose achievement was such as to promise much for the future, and, moreover, he was given a place in the post-office. As I have said, this was long before the day of civil service reform." Now, to the wrong kind of man all this might have meant nothing at all, but in Joe Murray's case it meant everything. He was by nature as straight a man, as fearless and as staunchly loyal as any one whom I have ever met, a man to be trusted in any position demanding courage, integrity, and good faith. He did his duty in the public service, and became devotedly attached to the organization which he felt had given him his chance in life. When I knew him he was already making his way up, one of the proofs and evidences of which was the fact that he owned a first-class racing trotter, Alice Lane, behind which he gave me more than one spin. During this first winter I grew to like Joe and his particular cronies. But I had no idea that they especially returned the liking, and in the first row we had in the organization, which arose over a movement that I backed, to stand by a non-partisan method of street-cleaning, Joe and all his friends stood stiffly with the machine, and my side, the reform side, was left with only some half-dozen votes out of three or four hundred. I had expected no other outcome, and took it good-humouredly, but without changing my attitude. 
Next fall, as the elections drew near, Joe thought he would like to make a drive at Jake Hess, and after considerable planning decided that his best chance lay in the fight for the nomination to the Assembly, the lower house of the legislature. He picked me as the candidate with whom he would be most likely to win, and win he did. It was not my fight, it was Joe's, and it was to him that I owe my entry into politics. I had at that time neither the reputation nor the ability to have won the nomination for myself, and indeed would never have thought of trying for it. Jake Hess was entirely good-humoured about it. In spite of my being anti-machine, my relations with him had been friendly and human, and when he was beaten he turned in to help Joe elect me. At first they thought they would take me on a personal canvas through the saloons along Sixth Avenue. The canvas, however, did not last beyond the first saloon. I was introduced with proper solemnity to the saloon-keeper, a very important personage, for this was before the days when saloon-keepers became merely the mortgaged chattels of the brewers, and he began to cross-examine me, a little too much in the tone of one who was dealing with a suppliant for his favour. He said he expected that I would of course treat the liquor business fairly, to which I answered, none too cordially, that I hoped I should treat all interests fairly. He then said that he regarded the licenses as too high, to which I responded that I believed they were not really high enough, and that I should try to have them made higher. The conversation threatened to become stormy. Messrs. Murray and Hess, on some hastily improvised plea, took me out into the street, and then Joe explained to me that it was not worth while my staying in Sixth Avenue any longer, that I had better go right back to Fifth Avenue and attend to my friends there, and that he would look after my interests on Sixth Avenue. I was triumphantly elected." Once before Joe had interfered in a similar fashion and secured the nomination of an assemblyman, and shortly after election he had grown to feel toward this assemblyman that he must have fed on the meat which rendered Caesar proud, as he became inaccessible to the ordinary mortals whose place of resort was Morton Hall. He eyed me warily for a short time to see if I was likely, in this respect, to follow in my predecessor's footsteps. Finding that I did not, he and all my other friends and supporters assumed toward me the very pleasantest attitude that it was possible to assume. They did not ask me for a thing. They accepted as a matter of course the view that I was absolutely straight, and was trying to do the best I could in the legislature. They desired nothing except that I should make a success, and they supported me with hearty enthusiasm. I am a little at a loss to know quite how to express the quality in my relationship with Joe Murray and my other friends of this period, which rendered that relationship so beneficial to me. When I went into politics at this time I was not conscious of going in with the set purpose to benefit other people, but of getting for myself a privilege to which I was entitled in common with other people. So it was in my relationship with these men. If there had lurked in the innermost recesses of my mind, anywhere, the thought that I was in some way a patron or benefactor, or was doing something noble by taking part in politics— or that I expected the smallest consideration save what I could earn on my own merits, I am certain that somehow or other the existence of that feeling would have been known and resented. As a matter of fact, there was not the slightest temptation on my part to have any such feeling, or any one of such feelings. I no more expected special consideration in politics than I would have expected it in the boxing-ring. I wished to act squarely to others, and I wished to be able to show that I could hold my own against others. The attitude of my new friends toward me was first one of polite reserve, and then that of friendly alliance. Afterwards I became admitted to comradeship, and then to leadership. I need hardly say how earnestly I believe that men should have a keen and lively sense of their obligations in politics, 
of their duty to help forward great causes, and to struggle for the betterment of conditions that are unjust to their fellows, the men and women who are less fortunate in life. But in addition to this feeling there must be a feeling of real friendship with the other men and women engaged in the same task, fellowship of work, with fun to vary the work, for unless there is this feeling of fellowship, of common effort on an equal plane for a common end, it will be difficult to keep the relations wholesome and natural. To be patronized is as offensive as to be insulted. No one of us cares permanently to have someone else conscientiously striving to do him good. What we want is to work with that someone else for the good of both of us. Any man will speedily find that other people can benefit him just as much as he can benefit them. Neither Joe Murray nor I, nor any of our associates at that time, were alive to social and industrial needs, which we now all of us recognize. But we then had very clearly before our eyes the need of practically applying certain elemental virtues, the virtues of honesty and efficiency in politics, the virtue of efficiency side by side with honesty in private and public life alike, the virtues of consideration and fair dealing in business as between man and man, and especially as between the man who is an employer and the man who is an employee. On all fundamental questions, Joe Murray and I thought alike. We never parted company excepting on the question of civil service reform, where he sincerely felt that I showed doctrinaire affinities, that I sided with the Pharisees. We got back again into close relations as soon as I became police commissioner under Mayor Strong, for Joe was then made excise commissioner, and was, I believe, the best excise commissioner the city of New York ever had. He is now a farmer, his boys have been through Columbia College, and he and I look at the questions, political, social, and industrial, which confront us in 1913 from practically the same standpoint, just as we once looked at the questions that confronted us in 1881. There are many debts that I owe Joe Murray, and some for which he was only unconsciously responsible. I do not think that a man is fit to do good work in our American democracy unless he is able to have a genuine fellow-feeling for, understanding of, and sympathy with his fellow-Americans, whatever their creed or their birthplace, the section in which they live, or the work which they do, provided they possess the only kind of Americanism that really counts, the Americanism of the spirit. It was no small help to me, in the effort to make myself a good citizen and good American, that the political associate with whom I was on closest and most intimate terms during my early years was a man born in Ireland, by creed a Catholic, with Joe Murray's upbringing, just as it helped me greatly at a later period to work for certain vitally necessary public needs with Arthur von Briesen, in whom the spirit of the Acht und Verzeger, idealist, was embodied, just as my whole life was influenced by my long association with Jacob Rees, whom I am tempted to call the best American I ever knew, although he was already a young man when he came hither from Denmark. I was elected to the legislature in the fall of 1881, and found myself the youngest man in that body. I was re-elected the two following years. Like all young men and inexperienced members, I had considerable difficulty in teaching myself to speak. I profited much by the advice of a hard-headed old countryman, who was unconsciously paraphrasing the Duke of Wellington, who was himself doubtless paraphrasing somebody else. The advice ran, Don't speak until you are sure you have something to say, and know just what it is, then say it and sit down. My first days in the legislature were much like those of a boy in a strange school. My fellow legislators and I eyed one another with mutual distrust. Each of us chose his seat, 
each began by following the lead of some veteran in the first routine matters, and then, in a week or two, we began to drift into groups according to our several affinities. The legislature was democratic. I was a Republican from the silk-stocking district, the wealthiest district in New York, and I was put, as one of the minority members, on the Committee of Cities. It was a coveted position. I did not make any effort to get on, and, as far as I know, was put there merely because it was felt to be in accordance with the fitness of things. A very short experience showed me that, as the legislature was then constituted, the so-called party contest had no interest whatever for me. There was no real party division on most of the things that were of concern in state politics, both Republicans and Democrats being for and against them. My friendships were made, not with regard to party lines, but because I found, and my friends found, that we had the same convictions on questions of principle and questions of policy. The only difference was that there was a larger proportion of these men among the Republicans than among the Democrats, and that it was easier for me at the outset to scrape acquaintance among the men who felt as I did with the Republicans. They were, for the most part, from the country districts. My closest friend for the three years I was there was Billy O'Neill, from the Adirondacks. He kept a small crossroads store. He was a young man, although a few years older than I was, and, like myself, had won his position without regard to the machine. He had thought he would like to be an assemblyman, so he had taken his buggy and had driven around Franklin County visiting everybody, and had upset the local ring, and came to the legislature as his own master. There is surely something in American traditions that does tend toward real democracy in spite of our faults and shortcomings. In most other countries two men of as different antecedents, ancestry, and surroundings as Billy O'Neill and I would have had far more difficulty in coming together. I came from the biggest city in America and from the wealthiest ward of that city, and he from a backwoods county where he kept a store at a crossroads. In all the unimportant things we seemed far apart. But in all the important things we were close together. We looked at all questions from substantially the same point of view, and we stood shoulder to shoulder in every legislative fight during those three years. He abhorred demagogy just as he abhorred corruption. He had thought much on political problems. He admired Alexander Hamilton as much as I did, being a strong believer in a powerful national government, and we both of us differed from Alexander Hamilton in being stout adherents of Abraham Lincoln's views wherever the rights of the people were concerned. Any man who has met with success, if he will be frank with himself, must admit that there has been a big element of fortune in the success. Fortune favored me, whereas her hand was heavy against Billy O'Neill. All his life he had to strive hard to wring his bread from harsh surroundings and a reluctant fate. If fate had been but a little kinder, I believe he would have had a great political career, and he would have done good service for the country in any position in which he might have been put. End of chapter 3, part 1